everybody, welcome to the conversation. I am your stand-in co-host. Co, I'm a host, Francesca Fiorentini. Hope you guys are doing good. We have two wonderful guests for you once again this day, this day of Mun. That's Monday. Uh, <laughs> with me is civil rights attorney uh, and former public school teacher. He's running for congressional candidate. He's running for Congress in Texas's 10th district. Please welcome Mike Siegel right here. Right on, so happy to be here, thanks for having me. I'm used to Skype, and so this is very awkward and weird. Um, so if you could just sort of like have a delay in your voice, that'd be helpful. No, we can actually have a human conversation. We can have a real conversation, and it's gonna yeah. last for more than two minutes. Great, sounds which is, good. I don't know how much time you get in Texas, <laughs> but maybe it's more than that. So Mike, okay, you, you're a progressive, you just got the endorsement of Working Families Party, congratulations. Thank you. That's huge, um, and you're running in a red district, right, and so this is where, uh, Democrats get very nervous, um, you know, because we we are afraid to um, run in a red district and, and put someone who's a progressive up in a red district. And I know that you actually came on this show and you spoke with Jank here in studio before, and then something happened afterwards. Tell me about it. Well, yeah, big picture. I'm running in the heart of Texas, trying to dethrone this guy Michael McCall, a longtime Republican incumbent with 300 million dollars, and mm -hmm. he's a GOP leader. And unfortunately, the, some of the national Democrats believe that to win a district like this, you basically have to be a light Republican, a military veteran. You know, don't support Medicare for all. Support some, you know, public option type plan. Yeah. Don't support a Green New Deal. And so I came on the show to talk about how the national Democrats, the DCCC, weren't really supporting me, even though my 2018 campaign put this district in play. And I told Jenka a pretty straightforward story about. Um, how hostile they are towards me. Okay. And uh, I got home back to Texas, and I got a call from a, a friend in D.C. who told me that the DCCC was very unhappy that I had gone on that show and that I shouldn't say such things in public. Uh, I basically criticized the political director of the DCCC, and then later I found out that uh, the DCCC was helping my opponent uh, transferred twenty five hundred dollars to her campaign, wow. even though they promised to be you know agnostic in the primary. Wow. I like on the one hand I'm like that's. That's incredible, but also $2,500, you could raise that. Oh yeah, I mean, I think uh, the supporters of the show have helped me raise at least that. Um, <laughs> but it was more like, you know, in person they promise, oh yeah, we're not gonna pick sides in the primary, but in the background they're clearly helping one candidate who happens to have backers who are mega DCCC donors. Like her treasurer has given over $200,000 to the DCCC. Wow. So they, they help her a little more than they do me. Okay. So, okay, so you're clearly an underdog, but not really because like you said, you ran in 2018 against McCall, right, Michael McCall. Um, and you said that you felt like you put this district in play for Democrats. Tell me about that. Sure, so you know, in Texas, every district is gerrymandered to an absurd degree. And so this district was drawn by Tom DeLay and Karl Rove uh, back in 2003 to be a permanent 60% Republican district. And until I ran in 2018, the incumbent was winning by 20 and 30 percent. Wow! But with a grassroots campaign, we mobilized over a thousand volunteers. We lowered that from 19 percent in 2016 to four percent in 2018. That's crazy. I mean, nowadays when I saw the four percent, I was like, okay, but nowadays every election is like a point tenth of a percent. But that's huge. Four percent means a lot. And so, how does that make you feel that still the DCCC? You know, is not catching on when you, your campaign and the volunteers were able to put this district in play. Is that disheartening for you? 
you know, I take it in stride. I mean, I, I've been involved in politics as a public school teacher, a union organizer. I'm, I'm pretty aware of the system. You know, right. I, I watch shows like The Young Turks. Um, but it, it was disappointing in the sense, for example, one of the things I told Jenk was that uh, I told the political director for the D trip, um, hey, we mobilized all these volunteers. We put together unions and youth and seniors and progressives. Yeah. And they said, well, don't worry about field. If you win the nomination, we'll take care of that. Yeah. And it's such a cynical approach to politics. The only questions they care about are how much money can you raise from your phone and what consultants do you have? And it's this whole- What consultants know, do you have? <laughs> well, you are know. Are you spending a lot on an app? No, I'm spending Thank money God. on contacting voters, you know, having real conversations. And I think the, the fundamental problem is a cynical approach that is basically based on manipulating voters. It's mm. not about you know, meeting people year round, off years and on years. It's about sending a whole bunch of mail and a whole bunch of ads in the last three weeks of a cycle to manipulate people. Not, not to establish the foundation for lasting political change. Right. And so, I mean, to me it points to, and I think this show is a part of that, we need independent power structures for progressives because these folks in DC aren't really having it. They don't wanna see real change in this country. And why are they wrong when it comes to their political analysis of who and when and what to run on? You said that your district, you know, supposedly um, people don't want things like Medicare for all. They don't want a Green New Deal. Supposedly, um, you know, <clears throat> they are Trump voters, right? So my question to you is, why is the D trip wrong about running a more moderate Democrat? Because what have you heard from people? Yeah, because it's really those folks in DC that say that, it's not the people in my district. And so to me, to beat a guy like Michael McCall, whose wife is an heiress to the Clear Channel fortune, they're worth over $300 million, you're not gonna outspend this guy. So I could spend all day calling rich donors, but that's not gonna change the calculus of who's gonna get out and vote. And so as a Democrat trying to flip one of these seats, we need to change who votes, we need to change the base, broaden the base. And the only way we do that is by, by drawing a clear contrast. You know, so I'm out there fighting on a Green New Deal in a district that includes oil workers on the Houston side, that includes a coal plant. But it also includes a lot of people who don't have clean water. They get a, a water bill with two pages of disclosures of fracking fluids in the water supply. And so by providing a clear contrast, by fighting for Medicare for all while rural hospitals are closing, uh, I can show folks, hey, this will be a big difference if you vote me in and vote McCall out. Yeah. I mean, that is, it's really inspirational, uh, everything you've just said in your campaign, because I think at a time when, you know, you're looking at the national level um, and wondering what is the way forward if we, if the Democrats make a progressive turn, you know, and we stop paying consultants and stop, you know, taking corporate money and we get money out of politics, there's another way. And you're sort of showing it here in Texas. It's super inspiring. You also have a huge endorsement from the AFL-CIO. It's an endorsement you got last time you ran in 2018. Um, how does that work? How does getting the AFL-CIO on board with someone who says, I want a Green New Deal, um, I don't know where you stand on uh, labor and trade, but uh, I assume you know, you're against things like the USMCA, or I, I don't know, but I'm, how does it work to get the AFL's endorsement as a progressive? Sure, so I come from a, a union family. My mom was a machinist at a Caterpillar factory. Uh, my dad's a longtime labor lawyer. So I grew up in that tradition, and uh, I'm coming to this race as a two-time union member. I was a teacher's union organizer, and then later as a city attorney, I was active in the union. Okay. My campaign has been unionized. Actually, my workers are represented by a union. Wow. So I thought it would be a slam dunk, and uh, the Austin Labor Council supported me unanimously. But when I got to the Houston side, half the workers work in the fossil fuel industry. You have steel workers who operate the refineries, you have seafarers who operate these big ships in the port of Houston. And it turned out that those three words, Green New Deal, 
were enough to convince them to support one of my opponents in the primary, who actually worked for an anti-union law firm, has a terrible record. But they were so concerned about the Green New Deal. Um, so I went into this convention, there was a split endorsement, but I spent three days basically caucusing with every union in the state of Texas, over 70 unions. And one by one convinced them that I'm fighting for a Green New Deal, we're gonna fight climate change, but we're also gonna make sure workers are gonna be at the table. Yeah. That we're not gonna change our economy without making sure workers and their families are taken care of. And so by the end of the convention, 65 out of 70 unions supported me for the endorsement, and I did win the sole endorsement. Congratulations, that's huge. So Thank you. by caucusing, you weren't flipping coins, I'm assuming. No, like one-on-one -on -one conversations and like, you know, looking people in the eye and maybe having a beer, but you know, real talk, like, hey, I, my family, you know, I work at a coal plant. You know, how are you gonna take care of me? And there's a lot of lost trust over the years. You know, we sure. haven't taken care of workers. The Democratic Party hasn't taken care of workers. And so we really need to rebuild that trust because there's no way we're gonna have a Green New Deal if workers aren't with us in that process. Right, and, and we've also been told and sold this myth that it's either jobs or the environment, right? And I think the Green New Deal obviously is in the title saying we can have both, but getting folks on board for that is very, very different. That's huge, that's and hard work. And we're up against you know, this media complex that's bought into the fossil fuel industry. And so we really need to sell it, that we're gonna create millions of wonderful new jobs, union jobs that are gonna support families, rebuild our country, and take care of our planet. I just saw American Factory after the Oscars the other night, and I was like, oh, <clears throat> we need better Democrats than this, because you know, yes. anyway. But um, okay, just tell me about your opponent. Um, maybe you've got two opponents. Yeah. So first, I guess, tell me about Shannon Hutchinson. Sure, so I'm in a three-way primary. Um, both of my opponents were previous donors to my campaign, but basically uh, after we got it so close, I think they decided they wanted to make a run for it. Wow. Um, and uh, Ms. Hutchinson is one of my opponents. She's supported by Emily's List. Uh, she has a lot of money available. She's on TV right now, um, while my campaign is out knocking tens of thousands of doors. and so, her background, unfortunately, includes 23 years as a corporate lawyer, representing mm. big employers against workers, um, taking on the Department of Labor. How dare they investigate workers' claims of missing back pay? She even represented a private uh, immigration jail just north of Austin Oof. that holds women who have been separated from their families at the border. And she represented a prison guard who molested many of these women. And so she's basically taken money from all the wrong people. Wow. And was a Republican donor, a Republican voter. Uh, but because she fits this image of moderate woman, pro-choice, lots of money, she's attractive to some of these forces in the Democratic Party. That that is really that's upsetting. I'm like I'm like I'm horrified and aghast at that. And it's hard also to run against that someone who's been endorsed by Emily's list. But also, you know, and you want to run a positive campaign, but th that that track record speaks volumes. What about yourself? What what about working as a civil rights attorney? How has that inspired your campaign? Yeah, so my background, 21 years of public service as a public school teacher, union organizer, civil rights lawyer. So I can basically say I've been fighting for kids, I've been fighting for workers my whole career. And so the proof is in the pudding. I wasn't out there trying to cash checks from big corporations. I was trying to make a difference in people's lives. You've been actually representing those immigrants, not the prison guards. I was the lead lawyer for the city of Austin as a city attorney to sue Governor Abbott in Texas to stop a show me your papers law. 
Oh. I was actually part of the statewide coalition that fought back on behalf of immigrant families. Mike Siegel, congressional candidate for Texas District 10. Thank you so much for being here. Awesome, wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. And I hope that the DCCC doesn't donate uh, nearly as much this time, but you can. Uh, SiegelfortExas.org slash donate, get involved, find out more about his campaign. Thanks so much for being here. Wonderful, thank you for the opportunity. And we will be right back with another guest. Welcome back to the conversation. I am a, a host, Francesca Fiorentini. How are you doing? Uh, we have another awesome congressional candidate, this time for New York's 10th district. Her name is Lindsay Boylan. Lindsay, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Francesca. Awesome, so okay, you are running for New York's 10th district, and the current occupant of that seat is one Jerry Nadler. We've heard about him from the Judiciary Committee, he's helped lead the impeachment, um, the impeachment, the entire impeachment. Um, why, why is it time for him to retire after 26 years? So I actually did the math this morning, and I was eight when he came into office, and I'm not that young, um, and in that time, <laughs> This has become the most unequal district in the country. So the, the, the biggest question of our time, inequality and climate change, is happening and is right in the center of our district and our community. This is an extremely blue district. It's only going to elect a Democrat. And we should elect someone who's going to wake up every day and confront the biggest issues of our time. Um, I'm running against someone who may be a nice enough person, but he's passed all of three pieces of legislation into law in almost 30 years. One of those pieces of legislation is uh, naming a building after the guy who died in office so he could get the seat through county committee, not through popular election. Mm. And I say that only because, you know, we do, we all know the kind of president we have in office. He tweeted about me this morning in some, you know, scare tactics about our race, saying I was going to beat the congressman. The problems we had in this country existed before this president. We shouldn't even give him enough credit. I mean, we, we know that he's a lawless person. He's feeding into the worst tendencies that we have in this country. But this new Gilded Age, the extreme inequality we have, people um, coping and self-medicating in physical and mental ways, didn't start with him. And I think it's very much, um, we have to focus on the bigger picture. I live in a community where more people are Googling anxiety, depression, and therapy than climate change, gun control, and plumber combined. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to minimize any of these issues, but we're missing people that we could save. I you know, and just to finish up my long pitch, I talk a lot, I know. I come from a family where three generations of women have lost custody of their kids because of mental illness and addiction. I am so lucky to be the first generation breaking that cycle. Um, I've got a great boss kid and she kind of teaches me how to be a good parent. But I had all these resources and all the opportunities to make it work. And when I look back at the rest of my family and the community I come from, it's not happening for most people. And that is not any, and that is on the responsibility, that's the responsibility of the government to make things better in this country for more people. If we're not doing our job and I'm, my life is about trying to be a part of fixing that. 
Yeah, so that's that's a lot. I mean, and it clearly you're <laughs> saying to Jerry Nadler, you know, like thank you next, and it's time to pass the torch, so to speak. Uh, definitely think that that's important on the local level. And, and you're saying actually that there are issues of inequality, climate change. You mentioned. Um, what are some of the issues that you feel and you've heard your district speaking about? So housing. Um, you, you probably heard of NYCHA, it's New York City Public Housing. We have thousands of people, families, elderly, kids going parts of the winter without heat and hot water. Mm-hmm. This was a slow moving disaster. The federal government disinvested in New York City's public housing over the course of decades. And our, our leaders, including my congressman, didn't hold the federal government to account didn't say you can't walk away from something you created. Uh, the concept of public housing is a really important one in this country, just like supportive housing, just like low income housing, like workforce housing, things we should be investing in much more and instead we're stepping away from. Even beyond New York City's public housing crisis and the disinvestment we've seen for decades, I knock on doors every week. And I can tell you that I don't interact with anyone who isn't challenged by the housing crisis in New York City. So many people are one month away from not having a place to live if they have one unanticipated trip to the hospital in an ambulance. Um, The reality- If if you're elected though, sorry to interrupt you, but if you're elected, um, where do you start? You're in Congress, and where does it start with when it comes to affordable housing and fixing this housing crisis? Not just for your district, but for the country. There's so many different angles, so many, um, a lot of discussion on where you know it's building more housing, it's you know rent control. Where are your thoughts on that? It's a few things. One, we have to do right by um, the public housing that exists. Um, we have to invest to the tune of. $30 billion plus in public housing. Um, we need a housing program like the state-led Mitchell Lama program that invests in workforce housing for the future. We need to create more housing. Mm-hmm. Um, we need more supportive housing programs. One of the biggest issues in, in our community and beyond is um, issues of homelessness. We had over 100,000 students um, who are homeless this year in the city of New York, in America. And we have to create much more supportive housing, um, new housing for families that would not otherwise be able to stay in the city, more low-income housing tax credits. Mm -hmm. Every kind of housing program we need to invest heavily in because it connects to, it's at the heart of inequality. If you can't afford to stay in your community, um, it's traumatizing, it's, it's destabilizing. Um, we, we need to throw all kinds of, of, of resources at this problem, increase the number of vouchers massively. Mm-hmm. There's a year long, years long waiting list to get housing vouchers, even if you qualify, which is to me unfathomable that we're waiting, that we're, we're making veterans and families that qualify for vouchers wait years to get access to them. We've just stepped away from this um, and we need to robustly invest in building new new housing, yeah. public housing, supportive housing, workforce housing. What is supportive and housing? You're using the phrase a lot and I haven't heard it actually. Is, does that include vouchers or what does that mean? I think, you know, 
if I could describe three issues I hear a lot about, which, which you asked about, it's, you know, obviously climate change, it's inequality, which I think is manifested both through housing and, and healthcare, big, big proponent of Medicare for all. And the third that maybe people don't bring up all the time first, but the minute I bring it up, it's the biggest thing on people's mind and it's um, mental health in this country mm-hmm. and the levels of addiction, the levels of, 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 you know, I have several family members um, who coming out of prison could be much better off, much more productive, more supportive of their kids, of their family members, if they had a resource, if they had um, housing that would really help them integrate, reintegrate into, into the real world. Yeah. Um, we need, we need housing that provides for seniors. And by the 2030s, one in five people in New York city will be a senior and we don't have nearly enough housing for them. So when I talk about housing programs, I'm thinking robustly, how do we, how do we somehow respond to the extreme inequality? The first way to do that is investing in housing. If we can keep people neighborhoods and um, that keeps people healthier it keeps them better contributors and more connected to their community so um, I use on that second issue you mentioned or first issue of climate change how does that uniquely affect your district and which is all in Manhattan correct it's Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn but um, that answer actually connects to your question because um, even the Brooklyn parts, we have the coastline of Brooklyn uh, and we have the coastline of Manhattan. This is um, a district probably more than any or on the top of New York City that has the most coastline. It was the worst hit by Hurricane Sandy. I came back from my honeymoon and we didn't have power for a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like being an I am legend. And um, seven years later, it's it's funny, but for a lot of people, seven years later, we're still recovering. And you know what? We're prime for the next superstorm, but we're not prepared for it. So in addition to being very much a proponent and supporter of the Green New Deal, I think one of the unique value adds that I have is that I um, managed the state's recovery work in Puerto Rico um, after Hurricane Maria. And the reality on the ground is such that we've got to we've got to find alternate energy. We've got to we've got to stop um, the use of fossil fuels we also have to deal with the reality of the environment that's already changed. We need a new appropriations process that doesn't um, have racist implications favoring certain areas, geographic areas over others. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm, I'm excited to be part of that. And what I've seen in New York City, going back to your question about this district, the people who are hardest hit, who are the last to be taken care of, are always the people who need the care and the support the most. It's women, it's the elderly, it's young children, families, people who um, in our international climate crisis are uh, a majority of the climate refugees. Right. Um, and and I'm just really excited to focus on that. And I, I didn't say it yet, but I'm also a mom. And I'll be the first woman to represent this district in 50 years, even though it's the home of the Statue of Liberty, of Stonewall, of all these important, iconic New York and American places. I think we should have a much more diverse representation, and I think we'd get much more diverse a diversity of things actually getting done in D.C. Lindsay Boylan, thank you so much for joining me on the conversation. To find out more about your campaign, we can go to your website, right? Uh, we yes. got that graphic up. LindsayBoylan.com, running against Jerry Nadler, a solid blue district. We got new progressive 
energy in there. Um, it's an honor. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk. I really appreciate of the opportunity. Course. Best of luck to you, and uh, what about you out there? Best of luck to you tonight, this week, just dealing with all the things. Um, and uh, I will see you tomorrow for New Hampshire coverage. And that's been The Conversation with Francesca Fiorentini. Goodbye. <laughs>